here is new today? Raise your hand. Isn't it amazing? Raise your hand. Come on, don't feel bad. We won't uh, do anything to you. If you're new today, <laughs> you know, it's just the perfect time. Let, let, let's bring you in on the day that you're new, and let's discuss the most controversial chapter in the Bible. <laughs> So perfect timing. I mean, just perfect timing. But, you know, uh, we believe this, that there are three relationships that we can have with the Holy Spirit. You find two of them in John 14, right around verse 16 and verse 17. That's the Holy Spirit's with you and the Holy Spirit will be in you. He's speaking to the disciples there before the upper room um, uh, stuff and before he died and rose again. And we believe the first relationship is a coming along ministry of the Holy Spirit because when he, uh, he says in John 14, 16, and 17 that the Holy Spirit be with you, it's the word for come alongside. And we believe that the Holy Spirit will come uh, draw you and come alongside you and woo you and point you to Jesus. And you surrender your life to Jesus Christ and then you receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, the apostles after John 14... Even I can figure this out. In John 20, after Jesus had died and rose again and was meeting them in the upper room, remember it says that uh, Jesus breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. He, became, he was in them. And the word for in in the Greek is en, is just in. He comes and it's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that all Christians have. But there's a promise that is being made. In fact, I want to take you right now to Matthew chapter 3. Remember, we're in the book of Acts chapter 2. But I want to take you to Matthew chapter 3, and I want to, you to see that right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the things that we're studying three years after this, or three and a half years, however you want to say it, or however much time, these things came true in Acts chapter 2. Look here in John, as John the Baptist, the relative of Jesus, gets ready to baptize uh, him in the Jordan River. And in verse 11, it says this, John the Baptist says it, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier, mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now that's at Jesus' baptism. Now here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the book of Luke, the last chapter. Turn to the book of Luke, last chapter. And it says this in verse 46. Right before he sends, Jesus says to his followers, who now, folks, have had the coming alongside ministry of the Holy Spirit happened to them, have had the indwelling experience of the Holy Spirit happen to them, but now the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He said to them, that is, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remiss, remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things, Behold, mark it, I send the promise of my Father upon you. The promise of the Father to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire because I want you to tarry or wait. Who loves to wait? Do you love to wait? Not me. Not very good waiter. 
or patient. But they, he tells them, I want you to tarry in the city of Jerusalem. Here's what it is for. What is this thing that's going to happen to them that we're studying now in chapter 2 of the book of Acts? It's this. That you're going to wait in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. You ever hear uh, pastors, uh, church commentators, folks in the media who speak of the church say, man, I just don't see the power in the church anymore. Where's the church in all of this? What's happened to the church? Well, I think the Lord is answering it for us today or pointing us back to it here today that there is power available for us. That some people, even in the Christian church, know nothing of. And today we want to take a look at it as we continue on Luke's second writing. Here we go. We move into the book of Acts and Dr. Luke is still writing. He's writing to one person, Theophilus. How sweet is that? He did all this research, all this study, all this time. He gave up his life and he writes two letters to one person. Never, never feel bad because God's called you to the ministry of one-to-one. Why, why am I not Billy Graham standing in a 100,000-seat auditorium? Well, he might call you to that. But how about this? One-to-one, authentically loving people. That's what I think that says, that Luke would take the time to write to one person. And he's writing this, and this is the link between the Gospels and the letters that are written later in the Bible. In fact, wouldn't it be weird if we didn't have the book of Luke? And here we go, and we just read the end of John, and then we flip the page, no book of Acts, and we turn into Romans. We'd be scratching our head. Because if you know the geography of Jerusalem all the way to Rome, if we didn't have the book of Acts, we'd go, well, how did this happen? I mean, this is a mystery. How did the gospel get from primarily being shared with the people of Jerusalem or Israel, the Jews, and how did it spread and get all the way around the modern world to Rome? Well, see, Acts answers that question for you. It details it. It takes you right through it. Here's another thing that Acts does. It shows us, it tells us, it gives us the way in which people who in the, are in the minority of ideas can live in a culture that's antagonistic against those ideas. Get it? Have you been turning on the TV lately? Have you been reading the media? Do you watch social media? If you just stand up for certain biblical values that are just basic, I mean, you're called everything, a bigot, a hater, you know, uh, you're this, you're that. And I mean, these are mean names and uh, we're, we're in the thick of it right now. In fact, you know, I know I don't look it, but I'm 55 years old and I can't remember a time that it's ever been this antagonistic. Maybe you can. It was antagonistic back in the day of Acts. Of course, they were being killed for their faith, but wow, you can't say one little thing about the Lord without the world jumping on, piling on, and say you're all these horrible things. When we be, we've just, we're just uh, sharing the gospel 
uh, with people. So it's important because it shows us how we're to live in a culture that hates the ideas of the things we believe, right? Or hates the idea of the things we believe. In fact, hates the person who is our Lord and Savior. Amen? So we're learning that as we go along. We're also seeing that the Lord primarily, although this isn't exact, primarily in the first half of the book of Acts, concentrates on Peter and his ministry to the Jews. And the Now, that doesn't hold up. There's Stephen, there's Philip, I get it. But then in the rest of the book of Acts, it's Paul's ministry then that takes it to the Gentiles, non-Jewish world. You get it? And so that's what we're studying. And also, I think what the book of Acts does is it grounds us. It takes us back to the way in which God intended the body, the church, the bride to be and to act and to do. It shows us what these people were doing on a daily basis, a daily basis. Because I don't know if you know, but we can get off our moorings a little bit. Uh, we can lose our mission a little bit. And, uh, you know, one day here we are teaching the word fellowship prayer, serving and loving and growing. And the next thing we're off as the church into something wacky and has nothing to do with the mission of God. It grounds us, I think. So here we come and we, uh, we, we went over a little bit this, uh, last week, Acts chapter two. Just perfect for new visitors. Because here's why. And I always do this, and I think it's appropriate. On one hand, what do we have in the Christian church when it comes to the Holy Spirit? On this side of the aisle, we have people that everything goes when it comes to the Holy Spirit. And in fact, there have been major abuses and charlatans and people who have faked it and posed it with with respect to the Holy Spirit. And they do all of these things, and it's not that they're charismatic, you see, it's that they're charismatic, charismaniacs. There we go. No sleep this weekend. And the point being is, if you say you're charismatic, all that means is you believe in the gifts. Don't you love a gift? Do you like gifts? Yay or nay? I mean, yeah, you like the gifts. A charismatic person is one who believes in the continuation of the gifts or uh, uh, and so we would say we're charismatic in that sense. I mean, of course, the word in the Greek for the spirituals is kara, charismatic. But then on the other side of the aisle, we have people who are so scared of the abuses, the weirdness, uh, charismaniacs, that what they want to do is they want to stand over here, and if somebody mentions Holy Spirit in the sanctuary, they clam up and they just, oh, he's not going to talk about that again, and they shut down. And they've been in a tradition that teaches that those things have passed away. Now, we recognize we're brothers and sisters with people who are called cessationists. A cessationist is just a person who doesn't believe that the gifts are for today. A continuationist is somebody who believes the gifts continue. Now, on several occasions here, right here in the sanctuary, we've talked to you about us and where we fall there. We believe that the gifts continue for today. We are a continuationist church. And we've gone through several times why we believe that the gifts still continue for today. And if you want those tapes or you want more, here's what I would suggest. 
uh, get the tape or come talk to us. And we're uh, happy to discuss it with you and uh, listen to you. And we understand their differing views. But here we're going to give our view today. And here's this. When the day of Pentecost had come, or fully come, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, Pentecost, one of seven feasts contained in the New Testament. Pentecost, it's easy to remember if you remember the other name for it. Feast of Weeks, or Shavat in the Hebrew language, which I probably just butchered, and you're welcome to correct me afterwards. But the Feast of Weeks, why is it the Feast of Weeks? Because here's why. Uh, it comes after the Passover. It falls on the 50th day after the presentation of the first sheaf of the barley harvest. That is, listen to this, seven weeks after the Passover, watch, plus one day. 50. Seven weeks. I am the worst at math. But I know 7 times 7 is 49, plus one day, 50. Which means the celebration of Pentecost wasn't on the Sabbath. You folks know that Sunday isn't the Sabbath in the Bible. Do you understand that? The Sabbath was Friday to Saturday, or Saturday, Friday night to Saturday night, or Saturday. So there were seven weeks, plus one, which meant, Day, uh, Feast of Weeks was on the first day of the week. Another reason, t- tuck it away, while the early Christian church celebrated the risen Lord, because he rose on the first day of the week, and the p- day of Pentecost happened on the first day of the week. Get it? So when the day of Pentecost had fully come, what is Pentecost? Well, here's what you do. You go back to the great book of Leviticus, and you think I'm kidding. The book of Leviticus, amazing. And you look in chapter 23, and it describes the great feast of weeks, one of seven feasts. Now, by the way, in Deuteronomy 16.16, it says that there were three of these feasts in which the males had to come back to Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem in the old city, it's peewee. It's not very big. You can walk around it in one day, easy. And they would bring people back during the feast. So the point I'm making is during the week of, or the, the celebration of Pentecost, the city was teeming with people. It was ready to bust, right? And so what would they celebrate? In one hand, they would celebrate this, the, the harvest, the provision, They would actually bake up in the temple areas, listen to this, two loaves of bread, big loaves of bread. And they would celebrate and thank God that God had given them things and stuff to eat, right? Provision. But what's really interesting about the loaves of bread in the day of Pentecost is, did they have leaven in the bread or did they not have leaven in the bread during Pentecost? (gasps) I fooled you because I bet most of you are going to say they had no leaven in it. Wrong. It actually says in the book of Leviticus that the bread that they would bake during this time would have leaven in it. What is leaven a picture of? Sin. I got news for you. I, I don't know if you know this. But praise the Lord that we have been saved by grace from our sins through faith. 
And God sits us in the heavenly places and He imputes to us His righteousness. But just like Paul, sometimes we sin. If you want to find the perfect church, if you find the perfect church, you know how to ruin it? Go to it. And the point I'm making is we still practically in these bodies sin, but praise the Lord. Don't you love the first John one nine? If you confess your sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. But listen, there's another thing I got to tell you about Pentecost. So what I've told you, barley harvest, celebrate day of Pentecost, first day of the week. But another thing that the rabbis would teach and talk about is that The day of Pentecost was celebrating the day that the law was given. The law. The law. The Bible tells us that the law is good and just and holy, but the law is designed for something. It's designed as a schoolmaster. What's a schoolmaster? A teacher. It's designed as a teacher. The Ten Commandments. Designed as a teacher. What for? To point you to a Savior. To drive you to the Savior. That's what the law is given. For. And we know <laughs> that as the law was being given, and if you go back in Exodus chapter 32, as they're coming down from the mountain after having received the law, some really weird things were going on down below. I'll let you read it. One of the things that happened that day as God was displeased with what they were doing is that the Levites came and killed as God asked them to, 3,000 people on that day. You could look it up in Exodus chapter 32. Now, the reason I'm telling you that is, as I gave away the store last week, we're going to see in the back half of this chapter that Peter preaches the first open-air sermon and 3,000 people are saved. And we know from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that the letter of the law or the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. You could also look that up in Romans 7 verse 6. So here you have Pentecost. Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. What other thing are we uh, to celebrate on the day of Pentecost, especially now as the day of Pentecost comes around? Well, it's the birth of the church by the power and person and work of the Holy Spirit We're about ready to look at it. You're sitting here today linked to Acts chapter 2. It's important. Where are our beginnings? Where are our roots? Here it comes. The day of Pentecost had fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. Remember, I told you last time, that's a big theme in the book of Acts. The first uh, followers of Christ... We're in one accord, unity of purpose, unity of spirit. You can, in fact, you can read uh, six times in the book of Acts that this is mentioned. But here they're in with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven and as of a rushing mighty wind. So you have three signs here that you're going to see. You're going to see the wind, a rushing mighty wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting probably in an upper room type of place, maybe the same upper room that they'd been, you know, before. 
But you got to realize now they have 120 people, not just 12. We're going to learn that in a little bit. So it might have been a different place. And it might be that they spilled out into the temple courts so that the other people that we're going to learn about here heard them. Everybody with me? So they're here in the upper room or some room like it. And there's a sound from heaven, a rushing mighty wind. It fills the whole house where they were sitting. We made comment about that. You don't have to move yourself into some sort of contortion or gyration to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. These people were doing it decently and in order. It was gentle. Luke tells us when Jesus was getting baptized that the dove came down in bodily form or something like a dove came down in bodily form and lighted on Jesus' shoulder. Picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is peaceful and gentle and kind and loving, beautiful. So here they're sitting, and then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. There's the second sign. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. All filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is related over to Acts 1.8. Go back there. But Jesus, 10 days before, says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The third relationship to the believer of the Holy Spirit, a coming upon ministry. It's that epi ministry. It's the coming upon ministry of the Holy Spirit that happens for people who already have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Getting with, get it? Uh, these disciples, these apostles, these followers already had the indwelling Spirit, but now the Holy Spirit comes upon them. In other words, in, in, in another place, I want you to see this in verse 5 of Acts chapter 1. For John truly baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus told them over and over and over that there's this promise of the Father. In fact, if you want to bless yourself this week, do this. Read John 14 through 16. Just read it. It's all about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, you're going to receive and do greater things than I even, Jesus said. Because here's why. I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send a helper. But I, the helper can't come until I go away. The Holy Spirit. Everybody with me? All right, no more yawning. No, I'm kidding. So what I want you to see is it was promised at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Baptism. Jesus spoke it about in himself. I just read it to you. Luke, 20, uh, end of Luke, uh, and then here in Acts 1. And later on, we're going to see that it was prophesied about this thing that's about ready to happen here in Acts chapter 2. Listen, listen, this is no small thing. It was prophesied 800 years before this day. 800 years. Here we go. So it says, and they're dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. Or there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews. Oh, I forgot to read verse 4. How could I forget to read verse 4? <laughs> Maybe I was trying to skip it so it wouldn't be so controversial. 
No, I wasn't doing that. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave utterances. Now, let me just say a couple things about tongues. You'd know that there is another part of the Bible that you would want to look at to focus on and to find out and to educate yourself about what are tongues. Couldn't there be a balanced approach? Well, I think there is. And that part of the Bible is in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I want you to turn there just for a minute. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. And here's what I would ask you. Whether you're a, um, on the side, uh, whatever. Whether you're on this side of the aisle before and you've gone to a church where, you know, anyway, you were on this side of the aisle. Or whether you've attended a church that was sort of, well, you know. Here's what I would ask you. Why don't you just read the Bible? (laughs) Just read the Bible. And recognize that most people, when they say that the gifts aren't for today, are talking to you about a verse in the 13th chapter, right in the heart of all this information about spiritual gifts. And you know this chapter as the love chapter, the marriage chapter. But really, the love chapter is set in the context of whether or not gifts are for today. So whether you're on this side of the aisle or this side of the aisle, how about this? How about be loving? Because if you want to do whatever or you want to do whatever, Paul says you're just like a noisy cymbal clanging in somebody's ear as you try to convince them one way or the other. Why not do this? Everything you do, do it with love. That's what Paul says. But he also says this, that somebody who would be in the cessation camp would say, would prove that gifts have ceased. And it's verse 10 of chapter 13. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Boom. I could almost memorize that. So short. Now, why did I lead you to that? Because somebody who is in that camp says this, that what happened to the apostles in Acts chapter 2? is that the apostles sort of spilled out of their upper room and they might have just gone into the temple courts and the Holy Spirit, rushing wind, uh, divided tongues. The Holy Spirit comes upon these 120 apostles and they start speaking in a language, listen to this now, that they don't understand. The person who's speaking doesn't understand it. But they're sort of uneducated people. I didn't say it. The Bible says it. It says they're Galileans. How could they know these foreign languages? And the point is, they didn't. But at the same time, there were these people that had come to the feast. Remember, it's Pentecost. In fact, I think they list somewhere between 15 to 17 different people groups who have come to the feast. Feast: Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, uh, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, 
Fer, I can't say it. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, Cyrene from Rome, Jews, proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. And then I want you to read something. And they heard them out in those temple courts speaking in a language that the people who were speaking them didn't know. But apparently, as they were listening to them, they could understand them in their own tongues. In their own tongues. And now this is the most important thing I'm going to say about tongues today. If we would just learn this, there would be way less controversy. And that's this. Tongues are always directed toward the Lord. In fact, even in this verse, I want you to hear and see that the people who were speaking in tongues were declaring evangelism. No. Sorry, I tricked you. They were not declaring evangelism. They were declaring the wonderful works of God. And I want you to remember that for always. The reason is, is because somebody who back in 1 Corinthians 13 uh, would say uh, that when these that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. I want you to just, listen, think for one second here. Here's what the argument is for cessationism. That which is perfect is done is the canon of Scripture. And before the canon was closed... Sometimes we needed a tongue to speak in so that people all around the world, because you remember the uh, Tower of Babel, people all around the world could hear the gospel. The problem with that argument is this. The people who were speaking in tongues weren't sharing the gospel. Did you get it? They were not sharing the gospel. They were sharing the wonderful works of God. In fact, in the book or excuse me, in the portion of Scripture that talks about gifts, the most important, second most important thing that I would think you would want to know is in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes. Now, I want you to look up here. If you're in this camp, generally what you do on somebody who speaks in tongues or um, uh, exercises a gift, generally, not everybody, not everybody, you know what they think? Oh my goodness. So base and trivial. I mean, I'm up here in my spirituality. Look at these people over here speaking in gibberish. I mean, how could you even think and stoop so low to do something like that? Come on, admit it. Here's what I want you to think about. Who wrote the book of Romans? The greatest treatise, maybe, theological argument of all time. Who wrote the book of Romans? Who wrote the book of Corinthians? Paul. Look what Paul says here. The same guy who wrote the book of Romans, wrote the book of Corinthians, said this, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Now, let's just do this. Let's take off all our theological biases. Is that a word? I don't think so. <laughs> That's right. I invent, I invent a lot of words, Timothy. I've invented one for people who scream out during the service, too. <laughs> I'm kidding. I love you, brother. All right. Look at this. 
Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. If you had no theological bias, what would you say? You'd go, wow, gifts. But especially that you may prophesy, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but speaks to God. Doesn't that sound like Acts chapter 2? Spoke the wonderful works of God. Oh, by the way, let's just go to the last verse of 1 Corinthians 14. Go there with me. Verse 39. Therefore, brothers and sisters, are you a brother and sister in Christ? Are you a brother and sister in Christ? Do you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, recognize that Paul wrote these words and that they're inspired? Therefore, brother, desire earnestly... I don't really know what earnestly means, but I think it means really do it. <laughs> really desire to prophesy. Oh, and by the way, don't forbid to speak in tongues. Paul, the writer of Romans. Then let's not forget how he finishes it out in verse 40. Remember, I said last week, this camp over here says, let all things be done. This camp over here says, let's do everything decently in order. But doesn't the Bible say, let all things be done decently and in order? Right here, right in the middle. There's a way, there's a balance between the charismaniacs and those who shut off and deny the person and work and the power Excuse me, they don't deny the person and work, but deny the power of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So when you come back, let's think about this. Uh, I know this in 1 Corinthians 12. Listen to this. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. That's in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Apparently, look, there's three relationships of the Holy Spirit. I've explained them to you. And in Acts, the promise was given that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. This filling ministry, this overflowing ministry, this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this thing that happened through the Holy Spirit where the apostles were given power. What? So they could run up and down the aisles and show off and roll around on the ground? No. It was for them to witness to a world that needed to see the love of God. Isn't that amazing? And apparently, sometimes what accompanies this baptism of the Holy Spirit is manifestations of the Spirit. And in fact, when you look in Corinthians, he enumerates not just tongues... We're only talking of one of nine gifts that he enumerates in Corinthians. You could also go over to Romans chapter 12 and find some more gifts. And so here in Acts chapter 2, why am I making such a big deal of this? Here, I'll tell you why I'm making such a big deal of this. My heart is this. Just this little congregation, this little fellowship of believers here in southwestern PA, who would choose this little sliver of Pittsburgh that you don't really, and then you come here and, and you find that the Holy Spirit of God can empower us and send us out to make an impact for, P, or, or, uh, for the Lord and share and love 
with people who are dying and hurting. But before that, what he does is he builds up his people in a healthy way. And part of the gifts, not part, the gifts are for what? All of the gifts are to edify the church. To build up the church. Why? So we can put stuff on Instagram like, oh, look how wonderful we are. We had 7,000 baptisms this year. No, it would be great to have 7,000 baptisms, but not to put it on Instagram and to brag. No, we're God's building us up, not so we can brag about us, but so we can go out and share with others until He comes back. He's pursuing people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. Like he's pursued all of us. You get it? And so he's building us up. And part of the healthy function of the church is to exercise the spiritual gifts. Because he says that all of the spiritual gifts, except speaking in tongues, edifies the church. Speaking in tongues, though, watch this. He tells us, just read. Just take my word. No, don't take my word for it. Just read 12, 13, and 14. What is the gift of tongues for? It's to edify yourself. You say, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be a selfless Christian. Edify myself? No way. What are you doing right now? You're hearing the, the word. It's being expounded upon. Why? Because you want to live a Christ-like, mature, Holy Spirit-filled life and go out and impact others. Guess what's happening to you right now? The Lord is enriching the inner man or the inner woman right now. You're being enriched. You get it? Uh, what else do you do? You pray, you praise, you read the Bible, you serve. All of these things help to make us healthy, mature Christ followers. Everybody with me? So let me just run you through this real quick. This baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is for power and witness and praise, it's Godward. All the things are starting to be directed Godward, including and most especially tongues. Listen, when do you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which can manifest itself in any of the spiritual gifts? By the way, the Bible tells us this. I want you to know this. Speaking in tongues is not evidence that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. How do I know? I can read. That's all. I can read. In fact, he says it back there. Is, would, would all speak in tongues? Would all prophesy? And it's a rhetorical question. And every answer he's assuming you'll know is no. You've been to a church that says baptism of the Holy Spirit, me, if you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you will speak in tongues. It's not true. Maybe you don't have that gift. And here's why I'm telling you that too. Because the Bible says all these gifts are given as God wills. It's up to Him. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a gift. Get it? All right. Just a couple other things. And then I'm going to tell you why I'm not on a tongues kick. You think I am. All I'm doing is going through the Bible. <laughs> Thank you. So, we know that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is that third coming upon ministry of the Holy Spirit, can happen at the moment of salvation. In fact, to Cornelius' household, if you read it in Acts chapter 10, Verse 44, 
you will see where the baptism, the power of the Holy Spirit came upon his household. But it also can be subsequent to your indwelling, in, uh, subsequent to when the Holy Spirit indwells you. How do I know? All I do is read. And when you read in Acts chapter 19, Paul goes to Ephesus and he asks them, you've been filled with the Holy Spirit? And they're like, well, you know, we're followers of Christ, but the Holy Spirit, we didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. So Paul prays for them subsequent to salvation and uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So when does the baptism of the Holy Spirit happen? Can happen at the moment of salvation, can be subsequent. Who's it for? Who's the baptism of the Holy Spirit for? All who believe. Don't believe me? Turn to verse 29 of chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you. Well, that's not it. It's Hold on, I wrote down my note wrong. It's for all who believe, and it's in there, and we're going to read it here as we go through. It's for all who believe, and you can look in Acts 11. It tells us in there, who's the Holy Spirit for? All who believe and ask for it. Huh? Oh, 30. There you go. Thanks for my wife. What? 39. There we go. Look, look down in verse 39. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God would call. Praise the Lord for my wife. But I want you to see something. And if you're a cessationist and you're sitting in here and you don't believe the gifts of her today, that's okay. I love you. We love you. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Praise the Lord for you and your ministry. Praise God. But I want you to see what it says in verse 39 as so eloquently pointed out by Jan. The promise is to you and to your children. What promise? the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then it says, and to those who are afar off. In other words, the gifts have not ceased. It's right there, right in front of us. By the way, there's not one time in the entire New Testament where the gift of tongues is ever associated with evangelism. And that's important because remember I pointed out to you that the folks who believe that the gifts have ceased say that which is perfect has come, the canon has closed. Therefore, we don't need tongues anymore because it was for evangelism. But the problem with that, it never says it was for evangelism. Everybody with me? Got me. Good. So there's many things that you can learn. I'm not going to go through them today. Here's what I would suggest you do if you want to hear more teaching on tongues. We have every fifth Wednesday of the year, which only is four or five, something like that. Do you get what I'm saying? Every month there's four Wednesdays except for four times or five times in the year. Every time that happens, we have a believers meeting here where we come and we wait upon the Lord. And if he chooses to give a gift as we worship, then we're going to exercise the gift decently in order. I would suggest you come to that and learn about it. But here's some of the things that I just want you to note about tongues as we read about them in Acts, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Can they be earthly languages? Well, apparently so, because in Acts 2, they were in an earthly language. But when you read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, they're certainly not in an earthly language. 
They're in a language that the under, or the person who's utilizing tongues cannot understand, and neither can the people around them unless there's an interpreter. So apparently, uh, there are, uh, these tongues on the day of Pentecost were for a purpose, and the purpose was to praise the great works of God, but with that sign and with the sign of the rushing wind and the divided tongues, it drew a crowd. What else? Tongues is a gift, but not the gift. I want you to know that. <laughs> tongues is a gift, but not that gift. I'm not on some tongues kick. I'm not getting you to speak in tongues. Uh, is it a fullness of the Spirit that can be used to edify yourself? Yes, if the Lord gives it. But contrary to what you might believe, I'm not on some tongues kick. I just encounter it in the Scriptures, and I'm tired of people sticking their head in the sand about it. That's all. But it's not the gift, because when you look back in 2 Corinthians, he gives as he wills. The purpose, again, is to edify and build up the one who is... Um, Speaking in the tongue, by the way, write this down. It's not only in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 14. It's also in Jude verse 20. There's only one chapter in Jude that there's a prayer language. Who is the gift directed to? Well, Jude 20 says it's a prayer language. What would you say prayer is? Real In this most simplistic form, talking to God. Would you agree? So prayer is, is, a, is a language where it's talking to God. It's directed to God. What are we saying to God? Well, it's always a prayer, a praise, and an adoration. And I could take you through several scriptures that only and, uh, and every time speak uh, of the fact that a tongue is Godward, not horizontal. If somebody comes to you and speaks in a tongue, and another person comes up and says, I have the interpretation of that tongue. Jan, you got to stop wearing sweaters. She doesn't. She looks amazing in the sweaters. But let's say, let's say the tongue is, Jan, you got to stop wearing sweaters. You know immediately it's not a tongue. Why? Because it's horizontal. It's not God word. Everybody with me? All right. There we go. So we move on. We believe it's for today. We believe, listen, there's great guidelines and boundaries about how these gifts, including the gifts of tongues, is to be used. There's a fence around it that Paul puts, especially in the cor corporate worship. So, let's move on. <laughs> If you have questions about tongues, well, come to the believers meeting. Uh, if you've ever been to a believers meeting, uh, here's what I think you would find. It's peaceful and lovely and wonderful and healing. It's not wacky and wild. It's balanced and loving. And here's what I think you'd think. It was done decently and on order, like a dove. Well, now that I've introduced you to that, how about Peter's sermon? Look at this. Oh, oh, one other thing I want to say. Look in verse 13. Here's why. Because some of you sitting where you're sitting right now are mocking in your mind. And some of you are saying, what are you mocking about? That's amazing stuff. Some of you might even be saying, is that guy up there drunk? 
Well, that's not a new thought. In fact, when this happened, that's what they said. Whatever could this mean? And others mocking said, they are full of new minds. So you have some people who are searching honestly. Some people are like, are you drunk? Happens today. It might even be happening in the sanctuary right now. But here's what I would say. Let's keep praying about it as we want to move in the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's why. Because Acts is still happening. Yeah, I mean, the book of Acts is closed. I'm not saying that, but the church is now. And we have a short time here, a short time. And people are dying, and we're watching football and Netflix and Instagram and Spotify and all these things, and all around us, people are dying. And the Lord is so amazing and wonderful, holding off in His kindness and His mercy, but He's coming again to judge. And until that time, what should we, would He find us doing? Have the oil in our lamps, all prepared, watching and waiting, but not just that, pouring our lives out by the power of the Holy Spirit so that people won't die. Now, is it dependent upon us? No, it's dependent upon the Lord, but for some reason, He uses us. That's why I talk about it. Amen. So Peter, watch this. Just even that. Peter. Oh, you go, wait a minute. Peter. The last I knew, old Peter was sticking his foot in his mouth again. Peter was denying the Lord. I mean, can you imagine anything worse than slamming your fist down on the upper room table and said, I'll die for you. I would never leave you. And just a few little hours, small hours later, just denying, denying, denying. In fact, the gospel says he was cursing, saying cuss words at the people in the temple areas who were asking him if he was with Jesus. And that look that Jesus gave him as he crossed the temple, it says in one of the gospels, their eyes met. After he had denied him. And I think... The way in which you think about that encounter says a lot about who you think Jesus is. Here, I read it sometimes and go, wow, I would have given him a glare. I would have given him a piece of my mind if I was Jesus across the courtyard. I don't think that happened at all. Jesus was just trying to get all of that ounce of self-reliance and self-confidence and get the self-life out of him Jesus, with loving eyes and graceful eyes, was saying to him, you're going to be restored. That's what I think happened. And here we see the first open-air sermon. <laughs> I don't know about you, but if I'd have been in charge and the apostle said, well, who, who should we pick to uh, go out there and now give the sermon now that the crowd is ready to go? I mean, there must have been a debate back there. Peter, really, Peter? We saw what he did just a few short months ago. Really, Peter? The Lord picked Peter. Amazing. And Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, where would did Jesus tell the apostles to go when he left to make disciples? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. That's the outline for the book of Acts. And here we go. We start seeing it right here in Jerusalem. All these people the Lord has brought to the city. Pentecost. And that's a great lesson for us. You don't have to drum up people. 
You get it? As you're walking with the Lord, you don't have to drum them up and do the events. If you're just in the will of the Lord, just walking with the Lord, the Lord will bring people to you. It might be one, it might be two, it might be 200, I don't know, but He'll bring them to you. You don't have to force it. You know when uh, Mike was talking about Sunday school? This is a well-said phrase, so I'm not the first one that said it, but God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called by the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And here Peter stands up, men of Judea, dwelt in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and heed my words. These guys aren't drunk. The Bible's funny sometimes. As you suppose. Why would he say that? Because he was under the influence of the Holy Spirit, which in Ephesians, they're in the same sentence. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians. So he says, not as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Guess when Joel wrote this? 800 years earlier. Joel wrote this 800 years earlier, and what he said was, it shall come to pass in the last days. You say, wait a minute, last days? I don't like that word. Well, yeah, you do. Here's why. The last days are the time of the Messiah, from the first coming to the second coming. That's the last days. We've been in the last days. I think we're in the last, last days. But that's something for us. It says it shall come to pass in the last days or the time of the Messiah, says God, that I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Everybody. Sons and daughters. Young people. Male and female shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions. Old men shall see dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, men and women, adults, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, which I believe Think, uh, speaks of the time in which the rapture happens and the tri- we enter into the tribulation. Actually, that was a terrible way of saying it. We won't enter into the tribulation because we'll be in heaven. But there will be a period of tribulation where God pours his wrath out on a Christ-rejecting world and deals with the Jews. Seven years of period, uh, period of tribulation. At the end of that, Jesus comes back to the earth with his saints, you, the saints, and establish his kingdom here on earth, rules and reigns from a thousand years in uh, 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 Jerusalem. And at the end of that time, this heaven and earth passes away, comes down and new Jerusalem, new heavens, new earth, where you're going to dwell forever. But the point of this is, is that this is speaking about these manifestations of the Spirit where God's going to pour these things out of the Spirit, even up into and including the time of uh, uh, this whole time of the plan and program of God that some call eschatology or refer to last days. But as we know now, last days is the Messiah age from the time of the first coming all the way to the second coming. In other words, you know this. 
What happened on the day of Pentecost, this is what this is saying. Look up here now and pay attention to this. On What happened on the day of Pentecost is going to um, uh, signify, is going to mark and characterize whatever we consider the last days. Did you get what I said there? Did you understand what I mean? What this Joel passage is saying, what happened on the day of Pentecost, Peter is saying, is going to characterize the last days, a pouring out of your spirit, a manifestation, the power. That's what's to characterize the last days. That's what he's saying by bringing up this Joel passage. And we look around and go, well, why is the church so impotent? I believe it's because we're ignoring the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you see. It's supposed to characterize the last days. Then he does this. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. By the way, time out. Uh, rabbit trail. If you want to see what it's like to evangelize or share the good news, just watch this. Here you go, some guy who fishes all the time. Boats, nets, skinning or cleaning the fish, pouring out the guts, bloody hands, smell, Mar uh, going into the marketplace to barter about the fish or to sell the fish. This is what this guy does. Uh, uh, foot in mouth, impetuous. You know, just a guy who just sticks his foot in his mouth, always jumps or jumps to conclusion, uh, flies off the handle, anger management problems. Look at this. The guy knows the scriptures like the back of his hand. You want to be a great evangelist? Know the scriptures. Here he uses the scriptures, Joel, and he knew well, what it was about. And he says, men of Israel, here's the second thing about, uh, here's the second thing about being an evangelist. Now get what I'm saying here. The gospel never changes. But come on, folks, you gotta know your audience. Here he knew they were Jewish. Get it? You would speak to a Jewish person and give them the gospel if you're a right divider of the word than when you went over to Athens and you worshiped Deities that were fake. We see that in the book of Acts. Know your audience. Nothing wrong with that. The gospel never changes. That's not what I'm saying. But Paul knew his audience. And he says, hear these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. He tells you that because he wants to say that the Messiah, the one I'm going to talk about is from your land. A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know, him being delivered to the determined purpose, to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Hey, folks, what is it? Let's solve the debate right now. Is it sovereignty of God or is it man's choice? Yes. And it's written right there for you. The, the Lord, God Himself, you get this, right? You see the sovereignty of God here. That Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Sovereignty of God. But the people who took Him by lawless hands did and committed sin, and they're responsible for it. Look, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible 
that he should be held by it. Hey, what's one of the great evangelistic scriptures you all know? Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Here's another one. Wages of sin is death. But we know he who, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now pay attention right here. He who knew no sin became sin. He never actually was a sinner. Sin was imputed to him. So if the wages of sin is death, and Jesus died for our sins, but he never was a sinner, he just had the sins imputed to him. Look, watch this. Wages of sin is death. Death couldn't hold him. You catch that? Death couldn't hold him. And that's what we celebrate. It says, it was not possible that he should be held by it. It couldn't be. The perfect spotless lamb. Praise the Lord. The only one equipped or qualified in all of history to pay the penalty for our sins. Praise Jesus. For David says concerning him, watch it, folks, watch it. Peter knows the scriptures. He knew the minor prophets. Now he knows the Psalms. And he goes out and he says, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, a psalm, for he is at my right hand that I not, may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. It's a psalm, Psalm 16 that he's quoting. It's as if the Messiah is speaking there. His soul is not to be left in Hades. The grave could not hold him. You sing that song. Why? He who knew no sin, wages of sin is death. Death couldn't hold him. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He won't stay there. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in his presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David that he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, did you know David was a king and a psalmist and a harpist and a shepherd, and he was also a prophet? It says it right there. And knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. That's a reference to 2 Samuel 7. Do you think Peter knows the scriptures or what? He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we're all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Look at John 16.5 after the service. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my right hand, Sitting at, or sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David is saying right here, he's calling his descendants. Do you get it? David is saying, my descendants are going to be called Lord. That wouldn't happen in a Jewish culture. He's the Lord, the one who descended from him. That's what David is saying is that Psalm. Peter knew it and stuck it into his, 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 uh, preaching in the open air there. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, 
Watch this. They were cut to the heart. Holy Spirit. Here comes the Holy Spirit. He does the work. He convicts them. He convicts them of sin and righteousness. And he said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what do we do? They're cut to the heart. And they say, well, what do we do? <laughs> That's when you know it's the Holy Spirit. You don't have to conjole, you know, make, here, put them in a head vice, read the back of this tract. No, they just said, what do we do? Wow. What do we do? Now, Peter said to them, watch this. This is very important. Repent. Change your mind and your whole life from going away from God and walk towards God, accepting everything that He has for you. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Watch. For the remission of sins. There's a repentance and a remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There it is again. There he is again. So repentance is a thing in salvation. So what's the relationship between repentance and faith? I like the guy who said repentance and faith are on both sides of the same coin. Get it? They go hand in glove. In fact, one person has said it this way. I love this. Repentance is not something we do before we come back to God. Repentance describes what coming to God is. I'm going to read that to you again. It's not something we do before he came back to God. Repentance describes coming, what coming to God is. Why am I making a big deal about it? Because there's some in the Christian church that says, you need to repent before you can come back to God. And they say, you've got to clean up your act and repent and get right. And then the Lord will accept you. And that's not scriptural. Repentance is and faith for the same, uh, both sides of the same coin. It's not something you do to prepare for salvation. It's something, uh, it's something that, uh, uh, it's repentance describes what coming to God is. I love how it says that. What coming to God is. Remember that. And reason I'm telling you that is we're learning how to be great evangelists through Peter. We're also sharing with you if you have no idea whether or not you're going to be with the Lord forever. What do you need to do? Repent. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to all who are far off, as many as our Lord will call. Now I want you to see, and we'll close, how the early church worked and many other words he testified and exhorted them. You think I'm long? And many other words. I get my things from Peter. You're trying to take notes and you just write at the end. And many other words he said, and I couldn't keep up. And exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. You see, the Acts is important. How do you live in a culture that hates your Lord and Savior, and any idea that you have, here's what you do. You get filled with the Holy Spirit and you go and share with people and you tell them that they're sinners in need of a Savior. And that if you will repent, God will forgive your sins and fill you with the Holy Spirit and you're going to be saved. And the Lord takes that and He adds. And the, listen, and you go, well, what do we do in the meantime till the Lord does all this amazing work? Please, 
If you're a leader of a church somewhere, don't go spend money on a church marketing study or what to do in the church because all you have to do is read one verse. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I said this once and a guy left and told me I was wrong and that's okay too. But look, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Be committed to the word of God. What's the mission of the church? Be committed to the word of God. Fellowship. Fellowship. But I want you to see something. Fellowship revolves around the word. Fellowship. So you get to know people and you love people and you can pray for people and all that sort of thing. Breaking of bread. What does that mean? Well, they probably had feasts all the time. They had dinners. But at the end of these dinners, I'm convinced they had the Lord's Supper. You read 1 Corinthians 11. I think it says that. The breaking of bread and in prayers. Folks, these people prayed constantly. It was the breath of life for them with God. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. This was voluntary. It was a temporary situation. Remember, the people would come from all around. This isn't communism, folks. One pastor I know says communism can be summed up like this. What's yours is mine. That's not what these people were doing. They were saying what's mine is yours. Totally different. And this was temporary, but it was voluntary. So they continued daily with one accord. There it is again. Same theme in the temple. Breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. What were they doing? Praising God and having favor with all the people. Watch this takes all the pressure off of evangelism. Every once in a while, I get somebody come up and say, I'm going to get him. I've been trying for years, and I'm still going to get him. I mean, people say this stuff, folks. I got news for you. You ain't getting nobody. Is that good English? I just want you to see that this is the supernatural work of the Lord. He adds to the church daily those who are being saved. I'm going to ask them to come up and we're going to worship one last time. And then we're going to go and get our kids. (laughs) Two of mine are in here. I'm going to get the third. And I'll be fine. But anyway... As they sing, I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to pray this, that we would have an open mind about who the person and work and, and what the work of the Holy Spirit is. We, we know who the Holy Spirit is, but what's the work of the Holy Spirit? One thing he wants to do is manifest himself, give you power, which could include... A spiritual gift doesn't have to be tongues. There's lots of them. Why does he do it? To edify the body. Why do we want the body to be edified? So God will be glorified. How will God be glorified? As we go out and share the love and light of Christ and many come to be saved as he adds to them daily. What do we do in the meantime? We concentrate on the word of God with fellowship and the breaking of bread and praying. 
the mission of the church. Right there. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come together and we... Anybody here who wants to receive the fullness of the Spirit, the overflowing ministry of the Spirit, Lord, that they would just ask Luke 11. You say you'll give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And so we're asking, Lord, for those here who decide they want to do that, How do we receive it? We receive it in faith. And Lord, I pray that you would bless this ministry. Not so we can say we're such a great ministry, but that you would be glorified in West Elizabeth and all the different places where these people go. Lord, help us, empower us, make us healthy spiritually. In Jesus' name, amen.